0: Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Our guest today is Faith Jones. We're going to be talking to her about her life, a memoir she wrote called Sex Cult None, and perhaps also about her present legal career. Welcome to Mind Body Health and Politics Faith.
1: Thank you for having me, Doctor.
0: Why did you title your book "Sex Cult Nun"?
1: Yes, uh, everyone has a question about that. <laughs> I would have thought it was more obvious, but uh, apparently not. Um, if you, when you read the book and you see how we grew up uh, in just. The way we grew up, we lived communally. We didn't have, you know, personal possessions. Our lives were devoted to service, Uh, spend hours a day memorizing scriptures and reading, you know, the religious teachings of the group. Basically, we, we lived like a religious order, except there was a lot of sex involved. And I remember when this hit me, I was actually doing a meditation retreat in the mountains in Sri Lanka. This was many years after I'd left and I was a, a attorney with Skadden Arps and, and I was working out of Hong Kong doing international IPOs and M&A deals. And I went and did this uh, retreat in the mountains and I saw these little Buddhist nuns in their robes and, you know, they're 13 years old maybe, and they were running around and uh, you know, having their little homeschooling at the table and chanting their Buddhist scriptures and doing their chores and you know, living this very isolated life in the mountains. And I thought, wow, this just seems so familiar. Where have I seen this before? <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, I grew up like this. <laughs> so um, and it came to me, I said, someday I'm going to write a book about my life and I'm going to call it My Life is a Sex Cult Nun.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, there is an implication when one uses the word nun to chastity, so the contrapoint of sex cult and nun is an interesting uh, counterpoint. Now, y- you were the you are the granddaughter of the founder of a religious a Christian evangelical religious order. Is that correct?
1: Yes. So my well, my family, not just my grandfather, uh, started. A group called the children. It was initially called the children of God. It had a variety of names during its 50, 50, year existence, I guess. Um, and it was called the children of God. It started out of, uh, Huntington beach, California in 1968, uh, out of the, it was probably one of the first kind of members of the Jesus people movement, uh, out of the hippies, out of that era of, um, you know, dropping out of the system and rejection of the man and so my grandfather's message uh, he was actually a pastor and came from a long line of even evangelists and pastors and but his message was not being well received by the churches that he was trying to pastor or go to because he was talking about you know you need to drop out of your lives and leave the system and you know devote yourself full time to being missionaries and you know give up all your possessions and and live in this kind of communal way christian communism type of way um, that he was saying, you know, this is how the the early church lived and so on. And, but his message uh, really resonated with the hippies and with the young people, because to a large extent, they were already doing that, right? They'd already left home and dropped out of the system and were living in communes. Um, And so that's where it really gained traction. And initially it was very well received because people were like, oh, he's getting these hippies off drugs and cleaning them up. And now they're becoming Jesus freaks, you know? But um, then other practices uh, began to emerge. And my grandfather began to have these other sort of revelations, which to a large extent, I think justified his own predilections or perversions or, you know, desires. And uh, but he was, you know, using God and the Bible to justify them and make them doctrine. And I think that's where the group really veered off uh, in a way that was very different from most evangelicals and Christians. And this had to do with sex primarily.
0: If I'm not mistaken, the, the major difference between the sexual practices, which you'll tell us about at the Children of God and many other groups that are referred to as cults is that what went on in the children of God was um, out in the open. It wasn't uh, hidden. Is that correct?
1: Yes. Yes. Um, it was. That's one of the things I think that's different. I think that all cults uh religious, a lot of religious groups, a lot of people who are trying to control others, they try to control two sources, um, money and sexuality. And whether that control is about not having it or, you know, you must have it. Um, and also the control of the money is there's a two very powerful levers that people who, you know, are are using manipulation and control over their populace. So I think those are two really important places to look. Uh, one of the things in which the, this particular group, my grandfather had these revelations called the law of love, which he said, all of the old Testament law is abolished. And um, there's only two, there's only, you know, one law left, which is, you know, if it's done in love, then it's okay with God and Jesus. But he really, expanded this to everything. So um, he had another revelation about how uh, one one wife, that the wife of one is the wife of all. So everyone's married to each other so that everybody should be having sex with each other within the group. Um, And for some time, uh, this practices and this uh, sort of uh, sexual, I guess you call it liberty, but it really became sexual exploitation in many cases was extended to children and um, it was taught in a way of saying, well, you know, kids should grow up with a very natural attitude towards sex. I mean, my grandfather had, you know, grown up in a a very restrictive environment. His mother was, um, you know, very scary, I guess, and like threatening him with a knife when he was a kid. Um, And then he'd also been sexually abused himself as a child by a nanny. And so he thought that this was okay. And this is really the issue that happens when you have these charismatic leaders um, of any type where they are taking their own personal experiences and then saying, well, if I liked it, then this is fine for everybody. Right. And they're not using a objective standard to. Look at to say is this right or wrong? Um, is this going to be harmful for people? Is this a violation? And and we can get into that later because I think that goes to the core of what happened in this group. But um, basically, he uh, promoted having sexual activity with children and saying this is normal and natural and so on and so forth.
0: What um, age children, Faith?
1: Well, with his own with his own child. Uh, so after my. My 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 parents were sort of the whole historical thing that goes into it. How you know my my father was kind of replaced as the heir to the throne by you know his second wife and this new child Davidito, um, but um, they wrote a whole book called you know the book the. Uh, about Davidito and his child rearing, and starting from like babyhood, you know, like hypersexualizing him um, and playing with him in sexual ways. So uh, that's what they were being taught as the standard for how to raise your children. And, so did
0: you grow up in a community in which virtually everybody was having sex with everybody else?
1: Um, yes, I mean it wasn't like it was. It, it was done in a very interesting way, but yes, basically um, people were. Uh, on a schedule to have sex with other people, like literally was like on the schedule, like, you know, your chores on the wall kind of a thing. It was considered an obligation, particularly for women and your duty to God to sacrifice your body and to have sex with the men um, as a way of like taking care of them, basically.
0: If I if I read correctly, please correct me if I'm wrong here. You say in your book that the women women were taught that whenever a man approached them and asked for sex, their default answer had to be yes. Is that correct?
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: So I I would imagine then, not having ever lived in such a situation, that there must have been quite a bit, particularly amongst teenagers, uh, people in their late teens, early 20s, there must have been a great deal of sexual activity going on because men must have been approaching women whenever they felt like it.
1: Yes, there was. There was a great deal of sexual activity going on. There definitely was in in its own strange way. It wasn't just allowed to be a complete free for all. It was also regimented. And you would also be told um, who to have sex with or, you know, sometimes not have sex with. Um, So it wasn't just like you could kind of do whatever you want. It was quite regimented in general.
0: But it sounds like, say, by the time a young woman uh, reached 18 or 20 years old, she would have had sex literally with hundreds of men.
1: No, I wouldn't say that. It's not that many. You lived in small communal homes, you know, so you and you were not allowed to have sex outside of the group. Um, so outside, basically, your,
0: outside of your small group within the larger group?
1: Well, the way it worked was for some time there was a doctrine called flirty fishing when I was a child. So I wasn't part of this really um, where the women were supposed to go out and recruit members uh, using sex. Okay. So that was at that point, you know, you actually were supposed to go out and have sex with people outside the group. Once they're, you know, the advent of AIDS and certain other things like that, then my grandfather completely shut it off. So you were not allowed to have sexual, any sexual activity, not even kissing somebody that wasn't a member of the group.
0: All this flirty fishing was going on. I read in your book that somebody did research and accounted for two hundred and seventy five thousand times that women had sex with people outside the group in order to bring them in and convert them to joining the group.
1: Yeah, I don't. It's possible. I don't know if the number was that high for actual sex. Right. Or if the number was um because they would also use like if you were flirting or using your sexuality or other things like that, but the number was very high and women were expected to do that. Um, and that really gets to the heart of, um, what went wrong. And even after that was shut off, right? There was still this expectation. And I talk about it. I give examples in in the book of, you know, my own experiences uh, with child abuse or with being pressured into having sex with people I didn't want to. And the, the core, the, the really the heart of this issue was that they taught us that we didn't own ourselves, that we didn't own our own bodies. Therefore, we didn't have the right to say no, we didn't have the right to refuse, because our bodies were simply a vessel for God. And if God wanted that, right, and God wanted us and was telling us to, you know, have sex with this person or share through, of course, the mouth of the leadership, right, Um, then that was our duty to do it. And so that was That was the core violation. It took me many, many years to figure this out Um, because for a long time, I asked myself, it wasn't like, you know, everybody was just running around having sex all the time. It was a very regimented uh, religious organization. We had a very strict schedule. Everybody had chores. People had to go out and and do missionary work and proselytize. I mean, um, there was a way in which sex was a, a relatively small part of that, but it was also... Uh, very highly promoted within the literature and everything. That was something very important, I think, to my my grandfather, who was the guru. So what happened there was that they took away people's sense of self-ownership and they use Bible verses to do that. Like you are not your own, you're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, right? So they said, well, you don't own yourself. So you shouldn't, you don't have any, You shouldn't have any say in this. You just need to give yourself over and be submissive and yielded. And, you know, all these terms and um, and that allowed uh, when people gave themselves over like this, right, if they give over their sense of self-ownership, if you give over your sense of your right to ownership and freedom and free choice, then you're also many people give over their sense of moral responsibility.
0: Well, it's a very powerful argument that was being made to the people in this uh, religious organization, because for people who believe in God, we are all expressions of God. That they were, it was an accurate statement for that particular group, wouldn't you say? I um, mean, for, for people who believe in God, not only are we all expressions of God, but so is the earth, so are the trees, so is the animals. Everything is an expression of God.
1: I think that that was a serious misinterpretation of that scripture. because if you're saying, you know, yes, we are all expressions of God. Right. But that
0: for the believers, for people who believe in God, I'm not including people who don't believe in God in that.
1: But the issue with that and I like to say this, right, I, I like to tell people this. I say you fully own yourself. Your body is your property um, and it's your inalienable right. Nobody can take this right away from you. And so Uh, And if when you believe in God, right, then people say, well, God gave me this life as a gift. What is a gift? A gift is a transfer of a property, right? Now, when we receive this gift, we have our body. We have to choose. How am I going to use this? Am I going to live in accordance with, you know, Moral laws, what I believe is right, what the Bible says, whatever that may be, we choose how we are going to live according to that. But to have someone else, another human, come in and tell us we don't have that right and that basically we belong to the group or, um, you know, we have to follow what this leader is telling us, this human person who's inserting themselves between us and God. Right. And saying you this is what God is saying, and so you need to do this with your body um, and and using the scripture to say you don't have the right to say no. That is the true violation that happens.
0: I can see why you refer to this as um, Christian communism, because there is an aspect of communism where one gives up one's identity in the name of the group. And I think to a certain extent, we're seeing that in China right now, where they're attempting to do exactly what you're talking about on a much larger scale. Well, I grew up
1: in China and they've done that forever. It's not new. Um, All all the communist countries, um, but not just communist countries, socialist countries, um, pretty much any type of uh, cult organization will do this. They will tell you that you don't own yourself. And one of the main uh, excuses or arguments that they use to make this sound noble is that it's for the greater good, right? That's what the cult did. The cult did this is for, you know, this is, you need to do this sacrifice to help your brothers in need, right? To help others. This is your sacrifice, this is your duty to God. It's always this greater good argument that is used. In communism, The concept is everybody belongs to the state. So it doesn't matter if we kill you or murder millions of people um, or take away your rights because you as an individual don't really matter. Your body is the property of the state. You see Um, the thing that Americans in uh, in the Declaration of Independence, this is what they were trying to escape, was the tyranny of having a king or someone else saying, I own you, I own your body. Right. That's why we say I have the right to life, to liberty and the pursuit of happiness, because under, you know, the the kingship type law where the concept was the king owned all the land, the king owned all the people. um, The king could come in and just put you in the tower for no reason, kill you for no reason. There was just there was no due process. There was no he didn't like you. Um, They had this horrible right of the ability to rape Uh, The king could rape your wife on your wedding night, right? So there was just all of these types of systems in which there's this concept of another person owning the other people, right? Or even a body or group politic having ownership over you is... um, All of these create these massive violations when you get down to it. And what's the first violation is the violation of my body, right? So a violation of my property right in my body are things like rape, murder, slavery, right? These are all things we together decide these are completely wrong, These are, No, it's not it's not a leap, right? Um, we all know these as basic issues, but what we don't see is the very clear, logical way in which this framework, and that's what I created here, moves out and it encompasses everything we consider the moral law and, um, and the law we have in countries all over the world, right? And it's really the core of it comes from this sense, I own my body. Um, that's why... Otherwise there would be no moral wrong in, you know, the strong being able to just take what they want and kill you. There's no wrong in it. You have to have a hook. You have to have a a toehold, right? That says, okay, you have violated this right. This is why it's wrong, right? And that is our moral awareness, our consciousness, our spirit, whatever you call it, uses this vehicle to experience this world. This is our property. That's our first right. And that is our body is our first right. And then the next right that flows from that, right? Cause we understand this. We say, if I own property, I also own everything I create with that property. So uh, in the cult, they said, you know, we didn't own anything. When we would go out and work hard and raise money and get donations, we didn't, we couldn't keep any of it. It all belonged to the group, right? Um, If you had something that somebody else needed, you were expected to just give it to them. We didn't have any sense of, okay, I work for this and now I, I'd earned this, right? This is my property. I wrote this song and it's mine, you see, and I get to sell it. So that, that whole concept, which creates violations like theft, right? Slander is our reputation. We have a we have anything that we create that has value is our also our property. If you have a fruit tree on your property, right? And it grows pears, you also own the pears. See? And then once you own something you get to exchange it for something else. And it's the level of the exchange which is really the level of relationships and contract contracts that Um, People not clearly understanding each of the factors necessary for this that allows people to be blinded to the extent that they can agree to all kinds of terrible violations. And this includes child abuse. This includes sexual abuse. This includes, um, you know, submitting to the manipulation of a cult leader or, you know.
0: On that um, attack, Faith, let me interrupt you and ask you, tell us about physical rape and verbal or coercive rape without a physical attack. But the same result.
1: Yeah. So and that's one of the things I I give examples of in my book because I've experienced all of those things and. um, Basically, within the group, you nobody was going to hold you down and force you to have sex. They weren't going to rape you in that way. Right. But um, one of the things that would happen, and I didn't, I didn't understand this till after I'd left the group, I left when I was in my early twenties. And, um, when I was going to college and I had a, uh, one of my boyfriends was a lawyer and he, he was the one that really explained this to me because I didn't understand it before. Um, and that is what would happen in the group would be that, you know, for instance, in this one experience, you know, when I was in Kazakhstan and, and the leader of the home I was in said, Hey, you know, you need to have sex with this young man. And I really did not want, I mean, like repulsed by, did not want to to do that. Um, And so I kept kind of trying to avoid it, you know, you dance around the issue for a while. And, um, you know, and they of course are like, oh, well, you know, we just need to share. And, you know, they're trying to make it sound all sweet and nice. Uh, But when I wouldn't go through with it, um, then what happened was, you know, all of a sudden, in the sort of we had this daily devotions, at all the whole home would gather um, to read, you know, the Mo letters, which were my grandfather's religious writings or the Bible or whatever. And each morning for like two hours. Um, and then they'd make announcements. And at that point, you know, the shepherds of the home had said basically announced to the fat home that, you know, I was rebellious and they had gotten these prophecies for me and so on. And then they had me kneel in the center and everybody had to pray over me. And, you know, so it was this um, public humiliation and, and a public breaking is what they would call it um, of, you know, you're not yielding to God, etc. and, you know, they made me change my name and everything to try to It's this like public stripping of identity and then like, okay, now are you ready to be yielded to God kind of thing and go do this thing that we've asked you to do. Um, and so that, that's using coercion to get you to have sex, right? That, that was using coercion, fear of punishment. Um, anytime you use that type of tactics, um, even though it was sort of a, a circuitous route to get there, right? They weren't like, "You don't have sex, I'm punishing you." They're like, "If you don't have sex with this person, you're being unyielded. We're going to punish you for being unyielded, and then you better go do it, right?" Um, and so, when you are coerced or you feel pressured into doing, into having sex with someone that you don't want to, for fear of punishment or something like that, then um, that that is still rape. Even if you willingly walk in the room, that is still rape. When we're talking about, you know, these child sex victims and sex trafficking and so on, right? Oftentimes these young girls are forced to uh, engage in this to pretend that they like it, to go along with it, right? But they're, they're being forced to do it, basically, you know, at the risk of their life. That is rape. Um, and it doesn't even have to be as severe as that for it to be rape. If you are not choosing this, right, willingly with knowing that I've got a free option to do this or not, then that can be rape. So, so that was a huge revelation for me.
0: With, with this kind of sexual activity going on within this organization, how did the organization prevent young girls of 12, 13 and 14, etc., getting pregnant?
1: So early on, as I said, early on in the group, um, there was. uh, The group kind of grew, right, because it started out with all young people and then they all started having kids. And then, you know, you know, they had a lot of kids because they didn't believe in birth control. Um, So it kind of grew with these families, I guess you could say. Uh, So it
0: grew to tens of thousands of people in 70 countries. It did.
1: It did. But it also had a lot, a lot, a lot of babies. So, um, and my family, you know, we were one of the first older group of kids, right? So we had a different experience than kids that came later because the policies of the group were constantly changing. And so like around the first 10 years or so, my grandfather was espousing these, you know, sex with children type policies. There was some of this going on girls as young as, you know, 12 boys, even younger, um, you know, having sex with adults and just really, really terrible things. And and as these kids got a bit older, um, there began to be more uh, inspection by the authorities. Uh, People who had left were reporting on this stuff, police raids. And as well, um, you know, they, they did like a questionnaire of all the young teens who were all like just a little bit older than me. And, you know, they discovered in these like very detailed questionnaires that all of the women particularly, but a lot of the teens had experienced trauma due to these policies. Right. They were really upset. They were terrified of adult men who had been tried to, you know, uh, be sexual, sexual with them. And and so they saw they began to see that these policies maybe were not um, bearing (laughs) positive fruit in the lives of these kids either. Um, And so mean, the
0: leaders of the organization began seeing that.
1: Yes. Yes. They began to see that. So it was, I think, a how combination of outside pressure and internal How did women, in the, or- pressure how did women in the organization
0: pressure? know who the father was of their children if they were having multiple partners like that?
1: Um, you didn't always. But anyway, let, let me just finish this and then we'll jump all back right. to your question. Um, so at one point around in the mid 80s, I believe it was, 1986 or 89, they they banned all adult child contact, sexual contact. They banned it. It was a like a psh, no more. Um, and
0: child, child defined is what age?
1: Uh, at this point, I believe it was under 16. But the ages would keep changing over time, like there were these court cases. And so then they had to create other standards and then it became over 18 and then this and, you know, it was all these weird age <laughs> ranges that, that came into play. Um, like teenagers younger than that could be with each other, but not, you know, past a certain age point. So they put in place a lot of very uh, strict regulations regulating that, which in um, any ways I was very happy about because um, when that sort of when the first kind of ban came in, I was about 10 years old and I was not far from hitting that limit uh, of 12 in which generally the kids were expected to engage in sexual activity with the adults i mean it was engaged in younger but not like full sex necessarily so um, that was a a huge relief for me at that time um and and the policies changed in that way so um it's not like it existed the whole time right so kids that came after that period were growing up after that period would not necessarily have experienced that unless there were people in the group and there definitely were, who were, you know, just kind of, um, uh, unrepentant pedophiles, right. Who continued to abuse and, um, but the practices were still around sex were still coercive. Right. And that comes from this, this core concept of what I'm talking about. You don't own yourself we get to tell you what to do with your body.
0: How is it that the cult was allowed to continue these practices, given that these practices are so far from the average or the normal bell curve of what's allowed sexually by governments? How is it that governments didn't move in on the uh, organization?
1: I mean, the, the organization itself was very secretive. They we didn't go to school. We didn't, you know, um, and, you know, they didn't hold jobs. They, you know, we raised money basically with donations and moved from place to place a lot. Uh, My family was uh, different in that we actually had a foundation in a location for quite a long time. We built this whole farm in this village and stuff, but that was unusual. A lot of families moved regularly to keep. How often is regularly faith?
0: How often is regularly faith?
1: Oh, maybe every year.
0: Oh, a whole family would move that often. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And would they, would they move as a group like 10 or 15 or 20 people so they'd all be together again? Or were you talking about small mother, father and a few children?
1: It would depend. Sometimes the whole home would move and sometimes the home might just disperse and families would go to other homes. So it just uh, completely depended. I mean,
0: And how would a small family like a mother, father and three kids, how would they support themselves with donations? How did did that actually work? It was
1: very difficult. I mean, the the concept was that we lived communally. um, So you actually had a lot of help. Right. Different people were assigned to watch kids. Certain people were assigned to cook the meals, do the cleaning. Some people were assigned to go out and raise money. um, And you would do this by selling, you know, the family, the, the, the groups, posters and CDs. Um, but oftentimes they might have people who would help like regularly support them. Right. So we call them friends of the family who um, would send them donations like a church, right. Send them like to the missionaries on the field, send them a donation every month. I mean, people lived very uh, not the leadership, but the rank and file disciples, right. Uh, they live very, very poor, like on the edge of poverty all the time. It wasn't they did not have like nice, happy, fancy lives by any means. You know, barely, barely scraping by
0: including um, their homes, the places that they lived were were very extremely modest.
1: Yes, very, very modest, um, you know, and you all lived crammed together. So, you know, you didn't have, you know, like a family would have one room, not, a, you know, not a house. <laughs>
0: So would you say of the tens of thousands of followers that there were at one time were the vast majority of them city livers rather than sort of idealistic communards living in the country and a nice farm and so on?
1: Uh, A lot of them would a lot of them lived in the cities, uh, but they would live like they would get like some larger like compound or, you know, larger property. Uh, to live in so that they could have multiple families living together in one property. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, a mo- lot. Most people, I would say, uh, would have lived in the city. Uh, my our family was was definitely unique in that sense. I mean, my father had this vision of what he wanted to create, and he was very bullheaded about it and not a lot of people wanted to stand up to him. Um, so, you know, at least but not if, what later. is the
0: difference? What is the difference? between a religious organization such as Catholicism or Christianity and a cult?
1: That is a great question, (laughs) because oftentimes when I talk about this, people are like, well, then all these organizations are cults. Um, But I think uh, I think there's if you there's a definition of cults, right? Um, I think there's a couple really key characteristics, and that is One of them is like uh, if you're saying complete isolation from society and cutting yourself off from outside uh, input. Right. Like we weren't allowed to read outside uh, books. Uh, We didn't go to school. We didn't hold jobs. You know, you're just you know, you're cut off very seriously. Um, Another is, you know, control of your finances. That's another big aspect when you are really cutting people off because you're not allowed to if you can't support yourself outside the group. So I experienced this too when my mother and and myself and my younger two younger siblings were accidentally kind of excommunicated or cut off from the group for about a year and like she couldn't survive, she couldn't support us. You know, I was begging in parking lots for money to feed my family when I was 12. You know, so it's taking away people's ability to support themselves economically apart from the group that's controlling the money supply. That's another really key part. And like I said, um, any, any sort of very strongly coercive group is going to somehow undermine your sense of self-ownership, your sense of free will.
0: So speaking now as a lawyer, which you now are uh, and have been for a while, talk to us about Religious freedom and government control. What what is, a, what is a religious group allowed to do in terms of their own sovereignty and in the name of freedom of religion? And when do they come under the aegis of the government of the country that they live in? There are those in religious groups who say, You know, we have a right to make our own rules because we are a religious organization. And so, for example, in the United States, as you well know, certain religious organizations don't have to pay taxes. I mean, that's an astounding thing when you think about it. Everybody in the country pays taxes, but religious, some religious organizations don't pay taxes. Some, for example, the Catholic Church a very wealthy church, the Presbyterian Church in the United States, a very wealthy church. They don't pay taxes at all, and but yet, so they're, they're not subject to the law of the land. But then in other areas, such as their sexual practices, they are subject to the law of the land if the government finds out about what they're doing. So the, the, this, it looks like there's some very gray areas in here or difficult uh, areas to discern. And, and uh, it has implications for what these cult leaders can and cannot do, doesn't it?
1: Well, that's why I created the framework, because it actually simplifies all of that. And it becomes a lens. It's like, you know how when you're trying to see things without your glasses and everything's all blurry and you put those glasses on and all of a sudden whoop, all clear like wow, i can see i can see all the boundaries i can read the text i see what's going on right that's what this framework does it's literally a lens that when you put it up and you're comparing people you're like okay now i see so um i don't consider we're talking about laws and regulations these are different these are two different things right taxes is a very different aspect than you know Uh, moral issues of child sexual abuse. Why is that? It's totally different. And the other thing we have to remember is that the law is not always moral. We have had and still have, I'm sure, many immoral laws on our books as a government. Right. Slavery was legal for a very long time. Um, You know, the women considered as property or ownership themselves. There are many times in which the law itself is immoral and is creating a violation of our rights. Um, So. I don't just assume that that is what's happening, that the law is okay or the law is correct, right? Um, When I look at this framework, that's how you have to judge it by whether it is the law of your government or what the religious groups are doing. Because if you're violating somebody's rights in their body, right? You're saying it's okay if I attack you, assault you, murder you, rape you, coerce you. If you're taking away their possessions that they've earned, If you are uh, in the in the Constitution, we have a law that says it's part of our Constitution. You cannot um, abrogate the right to contract. You cannot restrict the right of people to contract. Why? Because that is the layer of the deal. That is the next layer. If I own something, I get to contract for it. But for a contract to be valid, there has to be five principles that I have to follow. Right. And this is a thing all the time when you're seeing abuse, you're going to be they're going to be violating one of these. And the biggest ones that they violate are um, like, for instance, let's say we're going to look at uh, sexual child sexual abuse. Okay, one of the things that they would say is, you know, oh, this 12 year old boy. Well, I, you know, I asked him if he wanted to and he was like, sure, let's do it. Right. So this is his free choice. Right. Um, But. The question there is one of the two factors. So you have to have an offer. You have to clearly know what's being exchanged. You have to have willing acceptance. There has to be an actual exchange of value. You have to have the mental capacity to understand the impact of what you are doing or agreeing to and no undue pressure. So these are the two that are violated all the time. you think about it, a child does not have the mental capacity to understand what they are giving up. They don't know how this is gonna impact them in their future. They don't understand um, any of that. Undue pressure. Inherent in any adult child relationship is a power disparity. The child is biologically programmed to want to please the adult, right? Or to obey or to gain some kind of approbation, right? Praise from them. So if they feel like that's what they want them to do, they are almost biologically compelled to go along with it and to do it. This is not free consent from an adult, right? This is why we have all these laws about about like, you're not supposed to, bosses are not supposed to have sex with their employees, right? Because of the power disparity, it creates the risk that that person feels pressured to do something. Right. So it's not a free choice. Undue pressure. That is the that is huge. And we see that everywhere. So um, when you're talking about, like, what are these religious groups or leaders doing if they are violating one of these principles, in the how they're running their organization, then that's going to create an actual moral violation that creates real crimes. These are crimes that we morally feel like, wow, that is really bad. Right. Like child abuse, like rape, like murder, like theft, um, fraud, blackmail. Right. Those all fall into one of these circles. And it based clears on, it up.
0: Based on what you're saying, then I think a strong argument could be made that when the CEO of a co- company uh, makes uh, moves on a secretary and is successful, one could classify that as a rape.
1: Now, that depends. And now this is see I'm a lawyer here. So I have to say everything is so specific in context. OK, when it's a child, 100 percent, there just is no A child cannot contract. We don't even allow a child to enter into a contract, right? Because we understand that now an adult. What if the secretary is like chasing him down? Okay, maybe she wants to get him in bed for her own reasons or for to get a promotion or whatever that is that happens, too. So it's not that in every single circumstance uh, there is a violation, but the potential for violation is so huge there that you're better off not engaging in it. And if you do engage in it, which is why HR departments have all of these regulations, the parties have to come in, they have to sign an agreement and state, you know, um, I'm doing this on my own free will, I don't feel pressured in any way, blah, 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 right? They are trying to create an atmosphere where there is no, the other person knows I can walk away with no repercussions. And if you can't create that genuine atmosphere and that genuine feeling in the other person, then you are at risk for doing that. So Mm -hmm. how do you create that atmosphere, right? That the other person knows, hey, if I say no, hey, I'm not interested, it's not gonna jeopardize my job. It's not gonna jeopardize my position, anything else, right? That's why we have um, so many companies have rules against that, right? It's in the military, there's rules against, a superior officer having sexual relations with uh, someone junior to them in the military. It's because of that inherent uh, power disparity, which can create undue pressure in the relationship to agree to something they might not otherwise agree to if it was just a free, open, flat playing field. So that's why our processes and procedures have to try to level that playing field.
0: So talk to us now about the consequences of this predatory, non-contractual behavior. When uh, adults in the uh, Children of God organization had sex with children, uh, what do we know then about the lives of the children later on? What do we know about whether their ability to couple, uh, to form relationships, to have uh, healthy sex lives. Do we know anything about that, or is that still uh, yet to be researched?
1: Um, I don't know that somebody's done a, a research project specifically on these kids. And like I said, within the group, kids had very, very different experiences. Um, to a large extent, it might have depended on what home they were in, who the adults were that lived with them, what their parents did, how much, if their parents protected them or not. I knew some kids who their parents were very, very protective, and so they didn't really experience anything like that. Other kids, that was not the case. other kids, their own parents were abusing them. so you know, it' was very it was a vast uh, difference in the experiences. But the one thing I can say is that every especially all of the women um, definitely experienced trauma and they definitely uh, had to deal with that. Now, how people um, deal with trauma is also incredibly individualized right? Some people may have something happen to them that seems rather insignificant and it completely derails their life. And other people may have things happen to them that seem so extreme, you can hardly imagine it. And yet they are happy and functioning and, you know, they move on with their life. So I think the deeper question there, and one that I've explored a lot is how do we set ourselves up for resilience and the ability to deal with trauma? And how do we teach our children those skills? And I have like, kind of intimately uh, gone into my own life because people are always asking me, like, with all of this stuff you experience, how are you so normal and you're happy and you're productive and, you know, and, and so I really um, went after my own healing uh, with a vengeance and I, uh, but I also used certain techniques in my life, even as a child that I think really helped me. And so I went back and to observe those things to say, are these things we can teach? Can we teach this to other people? Can we teach this to children? Cause you're not gonna be able to protect them from everything. Right. But definitely from what I've seen, the conversations I've had, I, even in my own life, I do know that it impacts you. It definitely affects you. The extent to which it affects you is going to be different for each person. Um, and, you know, when I was a kid, I remember, you know, my brothers would kind of boast about it and they didn't seem like the way that the girls were upset, but the boys seemed like they were happy about it. But then talking to, you know, even the boys later in life, they're like, yeah, you know, I really realized now that that actually did have a negative impact on me. Um, that wasn't helpful, you know? And I, I didn't recognize these emotions or the embarrassment or the feelings. I didn't recognize them. I wasn't fully aware because they were so young, you know, at that time that, uh, But as adults and as parents and stuff, now they recognize it. So I don't think that, I don't think it's ever okay. Um, And it's not a choice that you should give a child.
0: In my own experience, I was uh, engaged in sexual activity when I was between four and five years old uh, by a babysitter. And the physical uh, and psychological experience. at the time it happened was not unpleasant at all. In fact, it was very pleasant. However, there was an immediate psychological impact that I had done something wrong, which mm-hmm. was an extremely heavy burden to carry until I finally got into some therapy when I was 16 years old at the University of Illinois. So it was very, very, it's was it been very interesting for me, you know, over the course of my career <laughs> to realize that there are also these cases, as you say, it varies from person to person, where in my case, I wasn't physically injured and nothing physically bad happened to me. And as I said, it was actually a very pleasurable, but the immediacy of the psychological impact was the trauma that I that I faced, because already by the age of four and five, we know that there are certain things that you're not supposed to do. And I had done one of them. And so I carried that, that weight. Uh, in your own case, you've been, you've been beautifully transparent and open about what you've dealt with. I read the section in your book where you talked about how sexual intercourse was painful for you for a certain period of time in your life. And, and that must have come out of the trauma that you experienced early on. And, uh, and I really uh, commend you for your openness in talking about that in the book.
1: Thank you. And I'm sorry that you experienced that. And, and, and you are right. To, uh, there's a lot of people that they're ex- the physical experience of it is, is pleasurable because it was our bodies. It was designed to be pleasurable. But it's like when you pick a fruit too young, it's never going to ripen uh, correctly, right? You, you've damaged it. You've damaged its growth process. You've damaged its development because you're engaging in something with that flower or that fruit and it can't, it's not going to fully develop into what it might have been at after that point. And I think that's really what happens and people recognize that later. And like you said, a lot of times uh, people who did have sexual interactions with adults at too young an age, um, which also happened to me, um, you know, when I was six and again, when I was 10, you know, we carry the guilt. We think it's our fault, right? We somehow feel like, oh, that was my fault or I agreed to it or, you know, whatever it is or other people carry around this guilt because they enjoyed it. Um, And that is incorrect. There is no guilt there. When you're a child, you cannot make those decisions. The adults are there to make those decisions for you. And um, you cannot, you're, you are not responsible for that kind of a decision. And I think that when people understand this framework and this is like really getting clarity on, like I said, those five points, the mental capacity and the undue pressure um, it takes away that sense of guilt. It's like, Oh my God, I get it now. Okay. Well then I don't have to be, feel guilty about it. Right. Because there's just no way I could have uh, been in a position to understand what's happening to me at five, six, even 10 years old. Right. And so, I think that is a really, what you talk, what you said is really, really important. Um, and and if something like that has happened to you, it's important to, to talk about it, to, to go to therapy or experts or whatever that may be. I, I actually wrote another book, um, which I think it's behind me there. It's on my website, faithjones.com. It's called I Own Me. And in that book is really my guide about how do you reclaim your body and your property um, And healing exercises that I found to be the most helpful uh, after experiences like this—rape, abuse, child abuse, whatever it is—you know—I kind of just compiled, uh, you know, my how-to guide for how do you how how do you recover from that, and and the things that I found most helpful. So that's also on my website, Um, if you know. And I, I really I created that first before I did my TEDx talk, and that really helped to to clarify and solidify the parameters of this it's, it's written specifically to women because um you know this i'm a woman so i can speak from that perspective better and you know uh if you look at the statistics i think 91 percent of you know rape and abuse and stuff happens to women um but it definitely happens to men a great deal in fact uh The more that I've spoken about it, the more that when female and male friends of mine have come to me and have expressed to me their experiences with it. So um, I know that this is, in fact, a much more common experience for men, especially uh, child abuse as children than we as a society uh, face or acknowledge. So. Yeah, even though I'm speaking to women specifically in there and to sort of a lot of the societal and psychological aspects that that make this more prevalent for women. Um, definitely those healing exercises work for anyone. <laughs> so,
0: oh, good. Well, I look forward to reading that book as well. And If people are listening to this and and uh, and this interview will also be in, in my book, um, and they know someone who is in a cult or they smell that it looks cultish, or if someone is listening to this and they believe they are in a cult, what can you tell them about ways to extricate themselves? How does one get out? I mean, you did an amazing thing. You spent some 18, 20 years of your life completely immersed, completely taken over. You really didn't own you as you do now. And yet somehow you managed to extricate yourself. I I know the the sort of reason on the surface that that you you were able to do it is because you got accepted at Georgetown, which by the way is a, a major accomplishment on your part, given how little education that you had prior. But what can you say to them about extrication and what can you share about how you extricated yourself?
1: I mean, when I left, there was no Georgetown on the horizon. Um, I left just hoping to get into community college and and do, a, you know, um, and I, I, to me, like my desire to learn was, was paramount. I just, I couldn't stand the restriction anymore and the restriction of my mind. So um, when I left, I was just, I had to figure out like, how do I get a job and how do I support myself and how do I register at community college and you know how do I take SATs and and all of this stuff. Uh it was just a whole world of stuff I had to figure out long before I I got to Georgetown.
0: Really? Um, Even knowing there was such a thing as an SAT was amazing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I guess I've been good at research in my life. Um, But I think it's that this what I would say what I didn't have back then was what I've created. And I think that walking people through these principles, understanding self-ownership, understanding each of the principles that I teach. And I have videos on my YouTube channel, Faith Jones Author. I think if you really can understand those principles and you can express them to the person who is outside or to yourself, right? Walk them through them, ask them these questions. Get them to like look at themselves and look at the situation and look at their leaders and say, are these people doing these things? Are they violating these principles? Just helping them to get that understanding. And for yourself personally, if you think you're in a cult, um, when you can really get these that sense of self ownership in your bones, you won't be able to take it anymore. You know, you just. You won't be able to allow people to railroad you and to do that stuff to you anymore Um, when you really believe in yourself. And when you really believe that you own yourself. And I think that will help give you the impetuous because it takes a lot of courage and a lot of hard work and a lot of determination to pull yourself out of that kind of situation. Oftentimes you don't have any finances or money, um, so, you know, it takes a lot of courage to do it. And I think you need to have that internal conviction, very strong within yourself and that will help guide you. And then you will also, there's also uh, lots of resources out there that can help, right? There's, there's, you know, shelters and there's different places to, that you can go. There's resources available once you really make that decision and, and you say, okay, this is it. I'm not doing this anymore. Um, and, you know, that's, That's what I would say. One of the things that I work with now uh, is I realized how important not just the mental aspect is, not just really getting clarity on your rights and your principles and who you are as a human being and what you should, what your boundaries are. I mean, that's really what this framework does. It allows you to define and clearly healthy boundaries, even if you've never had them, even if you didn't grow up with them, like I didn't, right? Um, But the second piece of that is. Uh, financial stability and independence. How do we get to that place? How do we achieve financial stability and independence? Uh, Because without that, you're still going to be subject to people uh, abusing you or to people discriminating against you or whatever that is. And when you can achieve that uh, economic independence, that is a huge step towards your own personal healing as well as, and, and regaining that control of your life. So I also teach people about that. I teach people um, how to use different structures, um, businesses, and so on. Investing. That's kind of been my kick for the last couple of years that I've really gotten into. How do we take our money and and uh, create passive streams of income for ourselves to protect ourselves. And, I mean, look at what happened in the last few years with COVID and everybody losing their jobs and and you know um, you know all of this uh, stuff that people couldn't have foreseen, right? Um, allowing, making sure that you're set up for that so that you can still take care of yourself and your family is so important. It's just huge. So that's another um, pillar I think we need in this process, in the healing process.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. I think, you know, the statistics as well as I of what percentage of people in the United States are only a few weeks away from not being able to make rent or a few weeks away from not being able to put food on the table for their families, uh, creating a kind of desperation that makes it more difficult for people to believe, in your words, that they own themselves. I think your contribution is terrific. It's enormous. Uh, I commend you. It's been a privilege talking to you, Faith. This concept of I own me, I hope it spreads and spreads. And I look forward to reading your next book. Maybe we'll have another uh, interview, if I'm lucky.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Richard. I appreciate it. And thank you for having me on so that I can share this and, and hopefully encourage more people to claim themselves. Oh! Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.